Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Here in the studio with me is my dear friend and engineer, Mike Delora. Good morning, Michael. How are you? How are we doing with our guests? Do we have them on the phone yet? We're not quite sure. They're, we'll have to check in a few minutes. Okay. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. Encourage community. That means us talking to one another, being good neighbors, understanding one another, being compassionate, doing our best to be friendly. Today, I hope we're going to have an interview with Dr. David Feldman and Lee Daniel Kravitz, the author of a recent book, Super Survivors. I say I hope because we're having a bit of difficulty getting them on the phone. The book, Super Survivors, is about the surprising link between suffering and success. More than 200 million people in the United States will experience at least one trauma in their lifetime. I've certainly had more than my share. Though some experience post-traumatic stress disorder and others serious psychological consequences, most are able to eventually recover and go on to live normal, well-adjusted lives. People are resilient. We bounce back. And often, we even bounce forward in truly remarkable ways. This book, Super Survivors, explores what they call the counterintuitive science behind stories of extraordinary accomplishment in the wake of trauma, and it helps us understand how ordinary people can achieve extraordinary things. So stay tuned for this interview with Dr. David Feldman and Lee Daniel Kravitz, which, as I say, we hope will be coming on. Do we hear anything from them yet, Michael? Anything there? They're still not on the line. Well, but first, before we go to the interview, news and notes in psychology and medicine. Here's an article on protein and stroke risk. Getting more protein in your diet, though not red meat, may reduce your risk for stroke, a review of studies found. These scientists did a study on over 250,000 people and found that after adjusting for various stroke risks and other nutrients consumed, those who had the highest consumption of protein had a 20% decreased risk for stroke compared with the lowest. Each increase of 20 grams per day in protein, which is about a three-ounce serving of chicken or fish or a cup of beans, each three-ounce serving was associated, this is over time, of course, was associated with a 26% decrease in risk, a dose-response relationship that strengthens the association between decreased risk of stroke and protein. By the way, the finding does not apply to red meat, which has been shown to increase the risk for stroke, and thus it was not evaluated in the studies. So. One of the scientists conclude, it's still up in the air, but they're saying moderate dietary protein increase certainly is in the right direction for good health with regard to stroke. For those of you who listened to the program two weeks ago when we talked to Dr. Smith about various toxins in the environment, you remember that? He even pointed out, for example, that if you can 
smell the plastic on your shower curtain, if you can smell the plastic on your shower curtain, that means you're taking that plastic into your system and you ought to be getting rid of that shower curtain if you can. Here's an article that says, in the workplace, fumes from solvents such as paints, glues, degreasers, and adhesives could have been implicated in cognitive damage. In other words, impaired thinking and memory abilities. Researchers report in the journal Neurology that the detriments linked to these chemicals might last many years. What it shows, what the study shows, is that these chemicals might have more long-term effects that have been previously thought, and they continue to affect people long after they are retired. A solvent is a substance used to dissolve another chemical. For example, water dissolves salt. The solvents targeted in this study, and this is what you want to listen in on, the, the solvents in this study are benzene, found in detergents and plastics, chlorinated solvents, found in paint strippers and dry cleaning solutions, and petroleum solvents found in varnish, okay? Particularly you guys who are out there working with varnish, be careful, petroleum solvents. So that's a little information on toxins in our life. There's an article I wanted to, uh, to read to you all because this is, some, this is I think it's groundbreaking. The parents of an 11-year-old boy were arrested in Britain on suspicion, suspicion, beg your pardon, on suspicion of neglect and child cruelty after authorities grew alarmed about the child's weight. Yes. The boy who, like his parents, was not identified weighed 210 pounds. Doctors and social workers concerned about his welfare had called the police after he was brought in twice for treatment. The parents were arrested in March after being questioned by the police. The father, age 49, and the mother were released on bail. The family was reunited, but they agreed to improve on their son's health. The boy is five foot one with a body mass index of 41.8. If you all recall, anything over 30 is obese. He's always been big, the father told the son. Well, Britain's Health Service considers obesity defined as a body mass index of at least 30, as I just said, as one of the biggest threats to public health, as it is in the United States. Obesity-related diseases such as diabetes and cancer cause at least 35,000 deaths a year in Britain. Well, that's the first time we know of that parents have been arrested for cruelty to a child because of the child's weight, 210 pounds in an 11-year-old boy. I'm getting a signal here from my friend engineer, Mike Delora. We have the guests online. Well, I have just a little more news and notes, and we'll uh, welcome them to the show. Thank you, Michael. Last but not least on news and notes is yet another article about beneficial effects of marijuana. Multiple sclerosis sufferers may benefit from taking medical marijuana, according to a new study in the journal Neurology. MS patients who use marijuana either as a pill or as an oral spray found relief from a number of symptoms, according to the study. These findings were released Monday at the annual meeting of the American Academy of Neurology. 
Quote, medical marijuana can be considered to relieve particular symptoms of MS, including spasticity, pain related to spasms, or central pain from MS lesions, says Dr. Barbara Copel, main author of the research analysis. So yet more on the beneficial effects of marijuana. You've been hearing that in the news. You've been hearing that from me, and there's more. As a matter of fact, when I was uh, in Paris recently with my lovely wife, Jolie, we interviewed a couple, um, of the wife of which um, had had a severe stroke, had been taking many medicines, and she reported to us that the only thing that really cut down on her um, seizures was a combination of medical marijuana and uh, Neurontin. So something to take note. And now we have our guests on the line, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, David Feldman and Lee Kravitz. Are you both there, gentlemen? We are. Thank you. I'm so Thanks glad. For having us. Oh, I'm so glad you made it. I was a bit nervous there. Yeah, so we're, oh, we, we were too. <laughs> we we survived. That's we good. we all survived. Um, and thank you, Steve, for uh, for helping put this together. That's your uh, publicist, I believe, gentlemen. That's correct. He's wonderful. At Harper. Um, Dr. David Feldman is considered to be among the top experts on hope in the field of psychology. An associate professor of counseling psychology at Santa Clara University, he holds a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Kansas and completed a postdoctoral fellowship in the VA Palo Alto Healthcare System, a medical center known associated with Stanford University. Lee Daniel Kravitz has a master's degree in counseling psychology and is a graduate of the University of Missouri School of Journalism. He's written for print and television, is a resident at the San Francisco Writers Grotto, and is a co-founder of the Lit Camp Writers Conference. Both authors reside in the San Francisco Bay Area. David, may, if I may call you by your first name, and please call me Richard, what does it mean, before we go on into the interview about your book, Super Survivors, The Surprising Link Between Suffering and Success, what does it mean to be a top expert on hope? Could you tell our listeners that? So hope is, of course, a really old concept. Uh, goes uh, back to ancient Greek mythology. Actually, hope is a big character in the myth of Pandora. After all the evils are let out into the universe, the one thing that remains with humanity to protect them is hope. Uh, of course, it's a religious and spiritual concept, but psychologists have just been doing research on it in the last, oh, maybe 20 years. Um, and I've done a lot of that research, um, trying to sort of pin it down, so to speak, do the kind of unromantic work of figuring out what is this amazing concept? How does it work in the mind, in the brain, uh, and how can we help people to have it? So that's a lot of the work I've done in my career. So hope is something that's going to, that we look for to happen in the future. Is that right? Or is hope something that we have right in the here and now, or is it both? So Webster's Dictionary defines it as a desire coupled with an expectation that that desire is realizable. And that's the way that we study it. So it is a future-focused sort of thing. It's, it's a perception but it's a perception of something that does not yet exist. Unlike most perceptions, you know, 
the chair is here, it exists, and then I look at it and I perceive it. Reality exists before my perception. But hope is a perception of a future that does not yet exist. And very often, hope motivates us and inspires us to make that future exist. Um, so that's the way that we have studied it and, and also designed therapies to try to instill it in, in people and nurture it in people. How is hope related to what we call optimism? It's really similar. I mean, they're, they're part of a family of wonderful constructs um, uh, that are these future-focused perceptions. The difference is, and it's a technical psychological difference, but I think it's an important one, optimism is the perception that good things will happen to you, regardless of any actions that you might take. Whereas hope is the perception that through your own actions, through your own efforts, you can make the future better. You can make desires come true. So it has a sort of human agency in it, which optimism is kind of agnostic to. Thank you. That's a very clear differentiation. Just for listeners and again, I, optimism is something, is a belief that something good will happen, and hope is related to the possibility that we can make something positive happen. Yes, yeah, so both I, of those make us feel good, and that's great. I mean, when we have optimism, we feel good about the future. When we have hope, we feel good about the future. But research has shown uh, that in highly controllable situations, like work, our work life or our school life, for instance, if you're a student, that hope tends to be a little bit more powerful concept. It's, it's a little bit more powerful thing to have because of this, this agency piece, that having it actually pushes us to do something to make our situation better. The book written by Daniel Feldman and Lee Daniel Kravitz, Super Survivors, it examines the stories and science behind cases where trauma survivors don't just grow, they revolutionize their very lives. H having survived, these individuals radically deviate from their previous life paths. Lee, you wrote the book with Daniel. How is the research in this book and writing this book, how has it affected your personal life? Oh, wow, that's a great question. So, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you know, my personal, well, it, this whole, you know, venture is a very personal venture um, as well as um, an academic venture. So Dave, as you, as you noted, is a, a psychology researcher, um, and he came to this um, from the perspective of wanting to um, really kind of dive into hope. Um, for me, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm a writer. Um, at the age of 29, I was actually a, a, a cancer survivor as well. And when I came out of that experience, I was intensely focused on the ways that people dramatically bounce back um, after any kind of traumatic experience, whether it's with, um, you know, an illness or some sort of man-made uh, catastrophe. Um, so, you know, I think for the last four or five years, you know, Dave and I have kind of joined forces and uh, uh, our lives have become really not just um, exploring the science, but also meeting um, uh, amazing survivors who, again, have not just bounced back after a trauma, but have gone on to revolutionize their lives in pretty remarkable ways. Um, and that is a pretty powerful thing uh, and, and a wonderful thing for, our, for us as, uh, as writers and journalists and, and uh, scientists to, to be able to experience uh, personally. 
to be able to experience actual people who are what you call super survivors, who not only bounced back, but what you call bounced forward. That's correct. I mean, you know, we had the opportunity to really talk to about, you know, 150 or so people. And unfortunately, we had to boil them down to about 17 stories for the book. Um, but a great example of how this, this worked, and you can kind of see as I tell this story, why it's so um, impactful to to us as we were writing this. Um, you know, so, you know, we met early on a woman named Asha Mavlana. And Asha, kind of like myself, was a, was a cancer survivor. Um, she started out uh, moving to, to New York after school, had a great job uh, in public relations, was making a lot of money, was actually a really, you know, she considered herself very happy. Um, and then she got really sick. When we met her, one of the remarkable things about her story I mean, right off the bat, was that she said to us, you know, it wasn't the treatment that was the hardest part for her. It wasn't the chemotherapy or the radiation or the, the ongoing uh, surgeries or things like that. The hardest part for Asha was actually the, the part afterward where she had to start over and look at her life um, having become uh, a survivor of cancer. And she didn't quite know what to do with it. So she took on, uh, she left her job and she took on improvisational violin lessons. This is something that she had always kind of wanted to do, but had never really had the space to do in her life. And, you know, you flash forward about a year, a year and some change, and she's moved from New York to L.A., and she had a recording contract with Universal Records, is playing with CeeLo Green and Jay-Z. She's on the American Idol uh, band and the Tonight Show band, and you know, she's completely revolutionized her life. And we were just completely blown away by this story. Um, you know, yes, there are some wonderful, exciting elements to her story, but when we boiled it down, what it really came down to was that Asha and, like many of the, the people we interviewed in this book, were just channeling something called post-traumatic growth or positive psychological change after a trauma. And to me, um, if I could interject, Please. The thing that's amazing about being in Asha's presence and the other super survivors that we interviewed is that it sends this powerful message, uh, it sent one to me at least, that trauma doesn't have to be the end. I mean, many of us spend so much time, I think, in fear and trying to prevent horrible things from happening. I mean, we look around us and we see terrorism and we see financial crisis and... We think, I think you can't be human and, and not help but think, what would happen to me if, if that struck me? And certainly trauma causes enormous suffering, PTSD, depression, um, all kinds of emotional pain. But these super survivors also show us that there is life after trauma, and it can be a powerfully uh, meaningful life after trauma. The human spirit really has the ability to transform um, suffering into a powerfully meaningful life. doesn't now, happen always. It doesn't happen always. That's right. In, in some cases, it goes in the opposite direction, and yet we Very also have so. the example of these super survivors. You talk early on about a concept that you call the special power of survivors. Could you say something like that? I mean, I'm a, a quote here. These individuals may emerge from otherwise awful experience primed with something like x-ray visions, which, uh, vision, which allows them to notice value and opportunity where they might never have seen them before. 
They may develop inner strength from having lived through an experience beyond their worst imagination. Yeah, so we, we make a comparison to superheroes at the very beginning of the book. Um, and, and we talk about how, you know, for Batman, it was seeing his parents murdered in front of him that really uh, gave him his inner strength to be able to become Batman and help save the world from the Joker and other um, maniacal villains. Of course, super survivors are not superheroes. They're normal human beings who, like all of us, are attempting to answer basic human questions. Who am I? What should I be doing? What should my life look like? Um, what do I believe in spiritually, uh, religiously? I mean, these are all basic human questions. I think for many of them, though, trauma sort of wake, trauma can wake people up. It can show people that, you know what, life may be short. You never know what's going to happen. And that sort of jolts people into noticing opportunities that perhaps they didn't notice before, or into truly looking inside of themselves and asking, who do I really want to be? For Asha uh, Mevlana, the, the electric violinist, the rock violinist we talked about, here she was in New York um, working for kind of a startup company as a workaday business person. Nothing wrong with that. But when she encountered uh, breast cancer at, in her 20s, which is relatively rare and scary, it caused her to look inward and say, do I really want to be where I am in life, or do I want to be somewhere else? So noticing opportunities, or noticing your own values, or noticing what the future could hold for you, uh, is, I think, one of the common outcomes of, of trauma. And it's called post-traumatic growth. And the really interesting thing is, you, you referred to the fact that it doesn't always happen. That's very true. So we all know about post-traumatic stress disorder, um, very serious condition, nightmares, flashbacks, depression, anxiety, deserves uh, treatment and recognition. Um, uh, but a lot of people don't realize that PTSD only occurs in about 20% of cases of trauma. A very serious, again, needing attention, but only about 20% of cases. Post-traumatic growth occurs in 50 to 80% of cases of trauma. Uh, that's just an amazing statistic. Um, it's not a, it's not, it doesn't give you superpowers, um, like Spider-Man, but it does give you the ability to notice uh, your life, to notice where you want it to go, and it gives motivation, I think, to take it in a, perhaps a new direction. Yeah, one of the things that we you know, ran into early on was the, this concept of post-traumatic growth, which is a, it's a term that isn't, uh, you know, as familiar to people as post-traumatic stress disorder or depression or anxiety, but it's a really fascinating, a fascinating uh, response to trauma. And, and it, it looks like, you know, after a traumatic experience, we start to relate to others differently. We 
see new possibilities um, and go after new opportunities in our life. We have new increased personal strength, uh, a greater self-reliance uh, on, on that personal strength. Sometimes it can manifest in uh, like spiritual change. Uh, we reevaluate our beliefs um, and we reconnect in, in different ways with our spiritual roots. We have an appreciation of life that is just just different, more intense. The, you know, Dave and I talk about it as the, the sky seems bluer, the grass is greener. Um, and that's what post-traumatic growth looks like. But like um, the depressionogenic side of, of, uh, of a trauma, post-traumatic growth isn't necessarily always long-lived. Uh, we, we tend to go back to baseline. So if you were a, a happy person before the trauma, you tend to go back to baseline. Um, if you were a miserable, curmudgeon person beforehand, you tend to go back to baseline. What we found with super survivors was that they took post-traumatic growth and held on to it, and they used it as a, as, as a motivation for uh, ongoing, lasting change. And it didn't just stop with them. Many of these people changed the world as a result, um, either starting organizations or... Um, you know, going to different places and working with different different populations, uh, uh, even in some cases working with Oprah Winfrey. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. I'm going to uh, read to you, gentlemen, a letter that came in after I sent out an announcement to my email list about your book and about the uh, program that we're going to do today. And here's the letter. Uh, this past March, I fell off a cliff. I fell more than two stories, landed on a rock, got seriously injured, broke 30-plus bones. I smashed my ribs, crushed my left arm, broke my shoulder blade, and fractured four vertebrae. But I'm also incredibly lucky I didn't fracture my skull or hurt my neck or spinal cord, didn't break my legs. The docs say it's remarkable I wasn't hurt even worse, and so far they say my healing is remarkable too. But the fall has turned my life upside down. I was a marathon run runner and I loved weightlifting. A month before the accident, I was backpacking in the Grand Canyon. I've always been super active. Now I'm on disability, can't drive, can't work, I'm doped on pain meds and the docs say it may take me an entire year to heal. And there's psychological trauma. My body is so broken, I think somehow my identity was broken too. Parenthesis, I'd like to insert a curse word here, close parens. Here's the thing. I don't want to just recover from this. I want to come back better and stronger, be even more alive than I was before. I want my life to blossom like crazy after this. There's so much more I want to do. But in hard moments, I think, who am I kidding? I'm 51 after all, and this was a very serious accident. Any recommendations? How can I become a super survivor? What do I need to do? Thanks in advance for your response and help please don't reveal my name on the air. So there's so much there. Wow. Um, yeah. First of all, my heart just goes out to this listener. Um, this is the kind of story, of course, that we all fear will happen to us. Um, the statistics are daunting. Um, trauma of this sort and other sorts happens to anywhere from 60 to 80% of people at some point in their life, just 
stop and think about that. At some point in their life, 60 to 80% of people will encounter a really severe trauma like that. So it's, it's a fact of, of life and a really painful one. Um, let me say that, first of all, to this um, listener, um, none of the super survivors we interviewed were super survivors instantly. All of them suffered. Um, you know, we tell the stories of super survivors in a sort of before and after way. Um, as I was listening to this email, I was thinking of the story of Casey Peretti. Mm-hmm. And the before is that he was a young man, just around 20 years old, with a basketball scholarship to a, a, a college. And then he encountered a horrible car accident. He was pushing his broken-down car by the side of the road when another car struck the car, slicing one of his legs off. He lost his basketball scholarship. He could no longer go to that college. That's the before. The after is that he is now one of Hollywood's most sought-after stuntmen. (laughs) And his specialty is, since he is missing a leg, um, having his leg blown off in dramatic ways on screen. He's been in countless movies. But it's not as if it just threw a switch in his mind and he suddenly became a super survivor. He suffered. He doubted. He wondered if... um, He wondered what this meant for his life. Uh, All of the super survivors that we interviewed had depression uh, at various points and had anxiety, and some of them even had PTSD. So my advice is, first of all, don't rush it. Don't try to be anywhere that you're not. Um, Pay attention to your feelings. Find someone to talk with about those feelings. But also don't lose sight of um, opportunities for growth. I know it's odd to say in the aftermath of trauma, look for opportunities for growth. But human beings, just by way of being alive, uh, the human spirit tends to expand, tends to look for opportunities to grow. Notice those when they happen. Um, You never know. Uh, when something new will present itself, and be prepared to take that, even while nursing your wounds, both physical and psychological. Have hope, I suppose, since we started this conversation with hope, that there is a future here, and keep your eyes open to what it might be. You know, one of the things that we talk about in the book early on is we, we kind of redefine hope a little bit. You know, uh, Dave and I can talk about, a little bit about it, but it's, we, we call it grounded hope. And it's not just, obviously, for this listener, but for anybody who's gone through, you know, these sorts of, you know, events in their lives. Um, you know, the idea behind grounded hope is that we look at our situation with wide open eyes. We are very realistic about the circumstances that face us and what we can or cannot do, and that's the grounded part. But the hope is also this um, uh, awareness, this belief that we can actually, you know, do more um, with our lives um, despite the the, uh, the 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 things that held us back as a result of that trauma. Um, I love I love the saying 
you can't always control what life throws at you, but you do have some measure of say in what you do with that um, in the future that you build. That's what Grounded Hope is about. And um, that's one of the major um, things that all of the super survivors said that's helpful to them. But again, there's no magic cure here. Uh, it takes time. I'd like you gentlemen, please, to, to bring in a few concepts that you talk about in the book and possibly relate them to this uh, gentleman's email. The concepts are what you call comparative optimism, positive illusion, and positive thinking. Could I sure. get you to address those concepts? Because they're, they're very interesting, you know, this, what you mean by comparative, comparative optimism. And, and positive illusions. What are these things? Sure, Please sure. explain. So, so this comes back to the idea of grounded hope that we started with. Uh, but let me, let me step back a second from that. When we ask these super survivors, um, and I'll get back to the, um, the uh, listener's uh, story as well. When we talk to these super survivors about what helped them to become super survivors, to not only bounce back from trauma, but bounce forward and change their life for the better. Oh, one of the things that they told us was what did not help them. And almost all of them said what really was not helpful was um, what they called the power of positive thinking. And let me tell you specifically what that is. There is this idea that's been floating around for um, decades, certainly, uh, which is uh, sometimes it's called the law of attraction. And it's this idea that if you put your mind on negative things, if you allow negative thoughts to enter your mind, bad things will happen to you. And if you allow positive thoughts to enter your mind, and only positive thoughts, then good things will be attracted to you and will happen to you. And so the upshot of this idea of the power of positive thinking is you should only think positive thoughts, never let yourself think negative thoughts. And... What a lot of the survivors we talked to said is that was not helpful to them. That when people told them, friends and family members, said to them, well, think positive, look on the bright side, don't let yourself think negatively, that that just made them feel estranged from those people. It made them feel alienated. Because in the aftermath of trauma, it's really hard to not allow negative thoughts to enter your mind. Uh, and to, to, do, to try to cut off those negative thoughts is really to deny the reality of what has happened. The reality for uh, your listener is that, that they just suffered an enormous trauma that has wreaked a lot of physical ha havoc and has changed their life maybe forever. So the super survivors that we talk to, and indeed the research shows, that it's not possible to simply think positive thoughts. You've got to start with realistic thoughts. You've got to say, yes, here I am, I'm injured, here's my chances of coming back to full capacity, I know they're not all that great, um, here's what the doctors are telling me, you know, for the survivor that I mentioned before, Casey Peretti, who lost a leg, he very bravely said, looked reality in the face and said, here I am, 20 years old, 19 years old, and I've lost a leg, and I can't go back in time 
and undo the accident. Um, they, and no amount, yeah, no amount of positive thinking is going to bring back that leg. Well, gentlemen, <laughs> I'm going to take a big risk here. I feel compelled to do so and, uh, and tell you something, uh, a story of my own life, which you had no way of knowing, of course, when the interview was set up. At the same age of this listener, 51, I was with a group of uh, motorcyclists uh, out in California on a one-lane highway, and I came around a turn, and suddenly there was a Winnebago coming at me on my side of the road. He hit me head-on and ran over me and crushed both of my legs. And uh, I was airlifted to a hospital. I was uh, in the emergency room. I stayed awake. And the first thing I found myself doing was arguing with the uh, surgeon who was uh, about to uh, amputate both my legs. Um, after I, I won that argument and, uh, and got him, I won't go into the details, but got him to do the surgery, uh, which was 15 and a half hours, um, I was told in intensive care that um, I would be in a wheelchair uh, for the rest of my life. And, um, I refused, to, um, I refused to go along with that. I simply refused. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, as soon as I could, um, I, I started uh, doing laps around the hospital. It took weeks to do that, of course, just to build up, to keep my upper body going. Well, I'm not going to take an, an awful lot of time with the story, but suffice to say that I, uh, I told that doctor, <clears throat> who told me I'd be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life, that within three years I would do a triathlon, and <laughs> yeah. uh, and um, and within three years I did two triathlons. Uh, both times I used crutches uh, for the running part, and um, I was in the wheelchair for six months. I then got out and got on the crutches. I was told I'd be on crutches the rest of my life. I got I dispensed with the crutches after four months. And, uh, and I've been walking on two legs ever since, though not necessarily always easily. <laughs> um, in my wow. case, yeah. I, re I refused to accept the reality that, the quote, quote, reality that was presented to me. When I was in the wheelchair, I, I got to associate with a lot of people who were in wheelchairs because you can easily wheel over to them and talk in a way that when you're on two feet that, you know, you don't have the same kind of conversation. And I met many people who had been presented with various, you know, uh, scenarios that they were going to be in the wheelchair, and they accepted it. I understand what you're saying about positive thinking, you know, and negative thinking doesn't get you out of it. But how does one know what, quote, reality really is and what is really possible? And if one doesn't extend oneself and say sure. that I, I think I can do it and go for it, how can one know one can't? Yet at the same time, I understand what you're saying is that, you know, if you set your sights beyond what's possible, you're going to let yourself down. But how do listeners know, if, if people like this gentleman who's called in, mm -hmm. you know, which way to go? What can, what can you shed light on with, for us, please? You've sure. interviewed so many people. Well, I'll tell you, um, in, if, if you allow me, I'd, I'd love to just kind of parlay your story into... Um, into, into one person in particular who we spoke to. First of all, Richard, that's uh, an incredible story. Um, and, uh, you know, we've heard many, many similar types of stories as well. And I'm, I'm really glad you're okay. Thank you. Really glad you're okay. Thank you very much. You kept both legs um, and were able to get up and walk. And actually I did it, you know, Dave and I did a, 
you know, uh, we never go into an interview without doing a little bit of research. So we knew a little bit about your story as well. Uh-huh. And when we read it, we were uh, both really surprised and impressed. Um, you know, you talk about, at least in one of the, the stories we had read, uh, you talked about um, revisiting the site of the accident and making sure that, you know, this, this painful memory, you were able to kind of correct that memory in some ways. And it's that's very similar to the type of um, exposure therapy that, um, you know, we work with, with, uh, you know, people with PTSD and people who are coming, veterans coming back from the war who have very, very painful memories um, uh, and trying to, to face that painful past is is not easy. It's very no, painful. It's I, very hard. Actually, what I did was I strapped my crutches onto a, a motorcycle and went back to the site of the accident, and I ran it over and over and over again perfectly until I sort yeah. of got into my consciousness a perfect turn without a trauma because I wanted that to replace the 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 the, the pain of the trauma that was in there, and I didn't want to you know keep waking up in the middle of the night with the trauma. Well, whether you knew it or not, that's very similar to your prolonged exposure or cognitive processing therapy and all of those sorts of therapies where we, you know, people do go back um, and, and recreate and, and, re, um, and face these, these horrific experiences and try to, to, to soothe the past um, a little bit more. But one of the things that, you know, we ran into um, a fascinating, fascinating man. His name is Martin Vander Weeden. Um, a couple of years ago, some of your listeners may recognize his name. He was a, an Olympic gold medalist. Um, but before becoming an Olympic gold medalist, he was actually a cancer survivor. Um, he uh, was diagnosed with leukemia. Uh, and when he was in the cancer ward, he told us that, you know, like, you know, he was a swimmer beforehand. Um, but like swimming and in sports, in the cancer world, um, you don't meet a lot of really realistic people. You, there's, there's, um, uh, or people tend to um, to prescribe that 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 positive thinking, um, you know, as a way to kind of uh, create positive results. And for for Martin, you know, he he really felt that positive thinking wasn't helping him at all. In fact, what was going on was he was looking at the reality in the face. His doctors told him he had about a 30% chance of living. And so what he did was he took one step at a time. And even though the doctors told him you have a very small chance of, of surviving this, this illness, um, he did everything that he needed to do uh, to try to get better. And ultimately, it was a... Uh, uh, a bone marrow transplant that that saved his life, and then he was able to take that that sort of grounded thinking and apply that to his swimming career. And by doing that, he was able to ultimately win a, a gold medal um, in in the Olympics uh, for for swimming. Um, so, so, Richard, you asked a question about um, positive illusion and comparative optimism, and um, this story that Lee is telling really relates to this. Um, so let me get back to that for a second. So what this story illustrates is Martin Vanderweegen, um, this guy who was diagnosed with cancer, who was told he had a 30% chance of living, and who owned up to that. He didn't think positively. He didn't, for instance, paint a smiley face over it and tell himself, if I just think positive thoughts, it'll get better. In fact, what he said was, look, I've got a 30% chance of survival. Chances are I'm not going to survive. That's the grounded part of grounded hope. But let's not stop there. There's the hope part, too. 
And the hope part involved him asking himself an incredibly, I think, brave and forward-looking and hopeful question, which is, given that this is where I am in life, given that this is what the doctors are saying, I don't have to believe them, but given this is what the doctors are saying, what am I going to do about it? What choices am I going to make to try to build a better future on top of this? In his case, it was to try to make sure that I am in that 30% of people that survive. And he had an incredible confidence in his ability to set goals, to envision a future, to take small steps to make it happen. So he, became, he began an exercise regimen. He began reading about uh, uh, treatments for cancer. Uh, he began doing small little things to be able to rehab himself. He began setting goals to have small positive experiences on a daily basis, to eat better, um, knowing full well the reality of his situation, but saying, you know what, given that this is the reality of my situation, I'm going to make my best of it. Now, there is this interesting phenomenon called positive illusions of control. Um, and <laughs> this takes a second to explain, but there, was this, there were these interesting studies done back in the 80s where they went to groups of people, college students and others, and in a group of people, you can try this, by the way, uh, in a group of people, uh, ask people to raise their hands um, to indicate whether they have lower than average levels, average levels, or above average levels of any positive characteristic you want. It can be uh, niceness, it can be intelligence, it can be control over my life, it can be any number of things. And what you'll find is 90% of people will raise their hand to say they have above average levels of these things. But of course, that's not possible. Statistically, the vast majority of people should have average levels. So what this means is most of us are walking around with a slightly overblown sense of confidence <laughs> in our ability to control our lives. And that's not a bad thing. Actually, the research shows that's a really good thing, mm -hmm. that having these slight illusions of control, these slight overblown senses of our own abilities helps us to bounce back and bounce forward after trauma. So for Martin, um, he knew that he only had a 30% chance of survival. He owned up to the reality of the situation, I think much like you did, um, Richard, in the aftermath of your accident. And the, the, the um, listener of your show who wrote in did uh, is as well. But then he said, look, I'm going to do the best I can, and I'm going to do better than what the doctors are saying. Um, for Martin... It was, I'm going to make sure I'm in that 30% chance of survival. And, and Martin had an incredible sense of confidence mm -hmm. that he could make this happen. That's what Grounded Hope is about. A realistic view of the situation coupled with a, a very strong confidence in your ability to do with it something amazing. So in terms of our listener, he says here that the docs say it may take an entire year to heal. He might set his goal at healing in eight or nine months. He might say to himself, what can I do given my situation that I can't drive and I can't work instead of what I can't do 
keep focusing on that. What can I do? What can I do here in the house? What can I do in the way of a little exercise? What can I do in terms of my nutrition? What can I do to get myself off these dope, what he calls I'm doped on pain meds? How can I titrate myself? Little steps is what you're saying, but little steps over this entire eight or nine months can end up being very large steps. Absolutely. And then the other thing is, in addition to setting these small goals about his rehab, I would encourage him to also allow himself to dream. Yes. So what do I want out of my life? You know, trauma doesn't have to be the end of a life. It can be an event in the context of a very large and and, um, meaningful life. It can also be the beginning of a new life. So in addition to saying, what are these small, tiny steps I'm going to take to rehab myself, start thinking also about... What direction am I traveling in? Does this change my view of where I want to be, of who I want to be, of how I want to be in my life? Um, So for Martin, he took these tiny little steps to rehab himself from his his cancer. But at the same time, he started thinking about, well, when I get rehabbed, what do I want to do? Um, And that turned into uh, his journey toward um, Olympic gold in swimming. Um, something he never thought he could accomplish beforehand. Now, you, in your book, you also talk about what we might call the darker side or the dif- a difficult side. You call it the terror of demise. That's something that we all go through who have had major trauma, the fear that either will die or something really even worse will happen or will end up with nothing. Please talk a bit about your concept of the terror of demise. So, you know... We, in our culture, American culture and Western culture, don't like to talk about death. Um, Death is a taboo topic. So here we are on the air talking about it. And the reason we don't like to talk about it is because it seems so final. Um, But there is this great quote that I love, which is that death ends a man. But the uh, thought of death, the realization of death, saves him. So there is this interesting thing that happens for people when they allow themselves to reflect on their own mortality, on the idea that, yeah, we are human, and we will eventually die. We don't know when. Hopefully we live a long life. But when we allow ourselves to reflect on the fact that there is actually a clock ticking, it can motivate us to truly act on our dreams. Most of us have big dreams, but we don't act on them. Uh, they seem risky, uh, and we sort of keep them to ourselves. I think one of the things that super survivors have to teach us is that in their encounter with trauma, they were forced to realize life is ephemeral. We don't have forever, and this put some pressure behind them to, make, to, to act on their dreams, to do what they'd always wanted to do. And there's lots, by the way, of research on this. There's studies where, um, for instance, Philip Casolino, a researcher who's done a lot of work here, has brought people into the lab and has sat them down and has said, I'd like you for the next so many minutes to reflect on your death, on the fact that you will not live forever, on what may even happen to your body. 
uh, as you die or after you die. But don't stop there. Also think about what this means for your life. In the time you have left, what's important to you? What's valuable to you? And what he's found in his research is that participants will say, this, I, I feel like my life is more meaningful just as a result of this five- or ten-minute reflection. I feel more energized to go out and make my life what I want it to be. And then, in fact, they do go out and do those things. So there's something strangely positive in thinking about death, even though it is terrifying to think about. We have a few minutes left, uh, gentlemen, and uh, I'd like for you to please talk a bit about the place of what we call faith. Faith. Mm -hmm. Faith is... um, it's a it's a it's a belief based on on um, sort of a spiritual, if you will, apprehension rather than scientific proof, right? What what what's the place of faith in being a super survivor and in, in our lives? Uh, what a great question. I mean, I think Dave and I went back and forth on this on this particular subject quite a bit. We spent probably the most amount of time, I would say, and Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, on on this particular oh, concept. Right. Um, and, you know, just to kind of illustrate kind of where we were coming from with just diving into this subject matter, we, we found this, um, we wanted to tell the story of one particular super survivor, but the, the only problem was with this particular super survivor, he was actually, he was no longer alive. Um, so we had to do a, a quite a bit of digging and, um, and talk to his, uh, his family and, and uh, people within uh, uh, the museum that he actually wound up founding. Um, but a couple of years, well, I should say in the 30s, there was a, a, a boy named Jim Cameron, and he was awaiting trial for a crime. Um, but before he saw his, had his, day in, uh, his day in court, uh, a huge mob moved into the courthouse where he was being kept, the jailhouse, I should say. They pulled him and his, his uh, accomplices out, and one after the other hung um, and lynched uh, each of these boys. Two of them died, but Jim Cameron, while he was being hoisted up in the tree, something happened, and there's conflicting reports as to what it was, but for one reason or another, the crowd let go of him, and he survived. And then you know, he went on to actually doing time uh, for his crime, and when he came out, he really believed that he was spared because God had a purpose for him, that there was something that he was supposed to do. Now, flash forward, you know, uh, 30, 40 years, he, uh, Dr. James Cameron uh, became a prominent civil rights leader, um, and uh, uh, wound up founding a museum called the uh, Black Holocaust Museum and uh, died with a doctorate and was recognized by Congress um, for his his work in uh, in civil rights. So I think the uh, the beautiful thing about faith is that um, it can give us a sense of mission in life. For, for James, um, That mission came from realizing, or believing at least, and no one knows if he was spared because of some act of God, Um, but giving him a sense that he was on this earth for a reason, for a mission, that he had a goal to accomplish. And that goal was to make the world a better place for everybody, uh, African Americans included. And so he became this civil rights activist. He helped to desegregate housing in Milwaukee 
and nationally. Uh, he was involved uh, with working with Martin Luther King Jr. Um, just an incredible story. And faith was a major motivator in his uh, becoming a, in his becoming a super survivor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not everyone, of course, has faith, and right. there are other sources of motivation. But for him, it gave him this sense of purpose that there was a reason that he survived his trauma, and that he was going to fulfill that reason. He was going to become uh, a leader and help countless people. Now, thank you. We've got. A, I'm sorry to cut you off, but we're going to have to stop there, David. Oh, sure. uh, if, if you're one of 200 million people in the United States who will experience at least one trauma in your lifetime, as these gentlemen have been telling us, Dr. David Feldman and Lee Daniel Kravitz, you're going to want to read Super Survivors, The Surprising Link Between Suffering and Success. You'll read about these concepts that we've been talking about, and perhaps it will help you become at least a good survivor if not a super survivor. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your interview today. It's, it's been a, a rare pleasure, and, uh, and I, I wish you every success with your book. Uh, Richard, thank you very much. Uh, it's you, been a real pleasure. Indeed. Thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my friend Mike Delora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.